This morning's title of the message, as those of you who have been with us know, is the prayer and the pleasure of God. Having completed the book of 2 Corinthians in our exposition and our studying of the Word of God and being ready to get into an exposition of another book, in between those two we have a mini-series going on in the area of prayer, as you know if you've been with us on a regular basis. And in this mini-series, we're not doing with the, uh, the normal way of how to pray, when to pray, all that type of thing, as you know. But we've been concentrating in the area of prayer in just some specific areas with the idea behind it that our attitudes, the sense that we have for prayer, our outlook on prayer might be improved and enhanced as an individual people and also collectively. My approach has been to look at it from three specific areas with you to bring you up to date. We've already dealt with, if you will, though it took four messages, the first two areas. And that is, first of all, the priority of prayer. We have taken the time in two studies to look at the priority of prayer to basically come down to this, that prayer should be a priority in our lives. And it should be right up there with the preaching of the gospel, right up there with the studying and the reading and the preaching of God's word. And we saw that it was in a priority in the early church, and it should be a priority in, first of all, our individual lives. We should see the need to read the word and to be people of prayer. We should also see the need corporately as a local body of believers, as a local assembly. We should see the need to and the priority in the place of studying the word as we do every time we get together, but also of prayer. The second area that we moved into and we concluded our second message on that last week, was prayer in the house of God. Prayer in the house of God. Let me give you a point of clarification, just in case I may have personally caused confusion by some of that which I presented to you, and maybe you did not catch all of it or I didn't present it properly. So let me just give a few moments on this. It won't take long, but to clarify something. There is no building, none, no building, no structure, no meeting place at all as far as a structure goes that is holier than any other place. None. There is no place that's holier, per se, with a building. Nor is the building holy in and of itself. This structure is not holy. Okay, so I want to make that very clear. I don't believe that, nor do I believe that that is what the Word of God teaches. We have seen in our study that it is the New Testament believer, number one, his body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so individually, as believers, our temple is the Holy Spirit, and we are to worship the Lord individually in spirit and in truth. However, we did see in the scriptures, and that was my point I was trying to get across to you, or part of it, that we meet collectively as a body. We meet corporately. And God has pointed out that as we meet corporately as the body of Christ, which is still an organism, it is still an organism, not an organization. As we meet, we do gather corporately somewhere. We do gather corporately wherever it might be. 
And wherever that gathering is, that local assembly we have seen is important to God. And it is His temple living together corporately and functioning. That is where He identifies Himself. So He identifies Himself with us as individuals. And then when we gather together, as we are doing now, we gather together, together as a local body, and He's identified with that local body. That could be a house church, that could be a storefront, that could be a modern structure such as we have. Wherever that is, God is identifying with that corporate body, uh, and we need to see that. And for example, Fellowship Bible Church, very quickly to give you some history, we originally met in a house on a porch. That's how the church started. And then we had a building that was in North Andover, and as you well know, we moved over to here. And that was a battle for some people because they held on to that building. And so we clearly taught and teach that that building is not what's holy. It's the people. But we were gathered in North Andover. Now we are gathered in Methuen. And we cannot escape. So you need to understand this. I believe I have a proper understanding. But you need to understand as a people, you cannot escape the fact when you mention Fellowship Bible Church, that while it's made up of individuals, it is associated with the building that you're sitting in. When people think of Fellowship Bible Church, they know there's individuals, but they meet corporately in the structure that we happen to be in. Not that this is holy, but we are. And the point that I wanted to get across was this. We talk about prayer in the house of God. As individuals and corporately, we are to be known as people of the Bible, and we are to be known as people of prayer because that's who God identifies himself with, individuals and corporately as we meet. Thus, prayer should be a priority in our lives individually. It should be a priority in our lives corporately. Thus, as the people of God, individually we should be praying. And when we meet corporately, wherever we're meeting, it should be known as a place where the word of God and prayer is held in high esteem and is a place that is known for that. And that was the point that I was trying to get across to you. This brings us to our third point that I had outlined for you in my approach in prayer. And I want you to really think on this, even the title, because it was carefully picked. Prayer and the pleasure of God. Prayer and the pleasure of God. Let me start with a question for you this morning. What is your main goal in life? Don't answer it out loud. Think about it. Is it to be happy? Is it to be successful financially? Is it to get married, some of you who are single? Is it to own a house? Is it to have children? Is it to be physically fit and strong and feel good? Now, those are commendable as far as things that we should want. But is that it? And then what? You're going to die? And then who cares? Is that, so, is that all your life is about? Is that the number one priority goal in your life? The Apostle Paul had a lot loftier goals than that. And I would commend to you that our goals ought to be way beyond that. 
If that's all you're living for, you're living for the wrong reasons, and when you die, you're in for a big shock. We ultimately for the glory of God. But I want you to see the lofty goals of the Apostle Paul, and that will lead us back to what I'm dealing with in relationship to prayer, and I hope you make the connection. Let's start by looking at the book we just completed in study. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. I will not even take the time. You'll, those of you who have been with me when we studied the book, we've put this in its context and everything else. So I'm not looking to take it out of its context. I'm looking to focus in on one point. Verse 9. Therefore... Also, we, Paul and those who are with him, have as our ambition. He says he and those that were with him had as their goal, their goal in life, their chief objective. He had an ambition in life. And what was it? Was it just to be healthy? Was it just to own things? Was it to be married? Was it any of those things? He tells us that whether at home or present, and that was the context, remember, whether being home with the Lord or being present, that's the context, in this world, still being alive, his aim, his objective, his chief objective, his goal was to do what? To be, help me, pleasing. To be pleasing to who? His wife? His children? Be honest with yourself. With many of us, the most important thing in our life is our spouse and our children. We would want to say God, but if we really had to be stripped naked before God right now, we'd find out that's what it really is. Or our job. Or our possessions. Paul says, I get a loftier goal. He says, my one and chief objective is that I might be pleasing to God. That I might be, if you will, acceptable to God, and I'll deal with that word in just a moment. I'd like you to keep, well, you don't even need to keep your finger there. I'd like you to look at one other passage with me first, and that's Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to see something here. Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have a man named Enoch. And you know most of this chapter is dealing with faith. But I want you to see something in verse 4, verse 5, excuse me, of chapter 11, to get right to the verse. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up. And we could look at that account of Genesis, which I will not do with you right now, so that he should not see death. He didn't see death. He was taken up. And he was not found because God took him up. Now watch this. For he obtained the witness. Here was the testimony of his life that before his being taken up, he was what? Pleasing to God. God took him out. He didn't see death. That's what the scriptures tell us. God took him. Why did he do that? Well, because God wanted to, sovereignly, yes. But he also tells us, that Enoch's life was a life that was pleasing to God. 
It was a life that wasn't concerned with this world or what people thought. He was concentrating on being pleasing to God. Let me ask you again, is that your goal in life, to be pleasing to God? It should be, especially if you're professing faith in Jesus Christ. It should be your chief goal. It should be my chief goal. And let me say early on right here that there are many people that would say that is their ambition. Their ambition in life, their goal in life is to be pleasing to God when in fact they're really not. What do you mean? Let me give you some examples. The Pharisees. If you were to talk to the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they would tell you that they were not only religious people, but they were committed to being pleasing to God, and yet they weren't. If you were to talk to a monk, and I have seen them in Thailand, people that have committed themselves not to be married, not to have possessions, and in one case, not too far from Joy's work in Kanchanaburi, who I have a picture of and have shown it to you, up on a hill there's a guy who's a monk who's sitting up there on a hill. Why? He wants to be pleasing to God. He's not. You say, Pastor Dan, how could you ever say that? First of all, you can't be pleasing to God unless you've accepted his son and trusted in his son for salvation because that's his way. And you're not acceptable to God by doing the things that you want to do to please him. It's by doing the things that pleases him that he says please him. If you were to talk to a suicide bomber, they would tell you that they're doing that to please Allah. And yet they're not pleasing at all. All they're doing is taking someone's life. So there are those, and there are those who religiously are dedicated and are going around knocking on doors and down in your neighborhoods trying to win you to their religion, and they are committed, they believe, to pleasing God. Listen, there's a lot of folks that are doing a lot of things, and it could even be in this room, who think they're doing it to be pleasing to God, when in reality, they're really not pleasing God at all. They're just doing what they want to do. We have a man named Enoch, and you know most of this chapter is dealing with faith. But I want you to see something in verse 4, verse 5, excuse me, of chapter 11, to get right to the verse. It says, by faith... Enoch was taken up, and we could look at that account of Genesis, which I will not do with you right now, so that he should not see death. He didn't see death. He was taken up. And he was not found because God took him up. Now watch this. For he obtained the witness. Here was the testimony of his life that before his being taken up, he was what? Pleasing to God. God took him out. He didn't see death. That's what the scriptures tell us. God took him. Why did he do that? Well, because God wanted to, sovereignly, yes. But he also tells us that Enoch's life was a life that was pleasing to God. It was a life that wasn't concerned with this world or what people thought. He was concentrating on being pleasing to God. Let me ask you again, is that your goal in life? to be pleasing to God? It should be, especially if you're professing faith in Jesus Christ. It should be your chief goal. It should be my chief goal. And let me say early on right here 
that there are many people that would say that is their ambition. Their ambition in life, their goal in life is to be pleasing to God when in fact they're really not. What do you mean? Let me give you some examples. The Pharisees. If you were to talk to the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they would tell you that they were not only religious people, but they were committed to being pleasing to God, and yet they weren't. If you were to talk to a monk, and I have seen them in Thailand, people that have committed themselves not to be married, not to have possessions, and in one case, not too far from Joy's work in Kanchanaburi, who I have a picture of and have shown it to you, up on a hill there's a guy who's a monk who's sitting up there on a hill. Why? He wants to be pleasing to God. He's not. You say, Pastor Dan, how could you ever say that? First of all, you can't be pleasing to God unless you've accepted his son and trusted in his son for salvation because that's his way. And you're not acceptable to God by doing the things that you want to do to please him. It's by doing the things that pleases him that he says please him. If you were to talk to a suicide bomber, they would tell you that they're doing that to please Allah. And yet they're not pleasing at all. All they're doing is taking someone's life. So there are those, and there are those who religiously are dedicated and are going around knocking on doors and down in your neighborhoods trying to win you to their religion, and they are committed, they believe, to pleasing God. Listen, there's a lot of folks that are doing a lot of things, and it could even be in this room, who think they're doing it to be pleasing to God, when in reality, they're really not pleasing God at all. They're just doing what they want to do. We have a man named Enoch, and you know most of this chapter is dealing with faith. But I want you to see something in verse 4, verse 5, excuse me, of chapter 11, to get right to the verse. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up, and we could look at that account of Genesis, which I will not do with you right now, so that he should not see death. He didn't see death, he was taken up. And he was not found because God took him up. Now watch this. For he obtained the witness. Here was the testimony of his life that before his being taken up, he was what? Pleasing to God. God took him out. He didn't see death. That's what the scriptures tell us. God took him. Why did he do that? Well, because God wanted to, sovereignly, yes. But he also tells us that Enoch's life was a life that was pleasing to God. It was a life that wasn't concerned with this world or what people thought. He was concentrating on being pleasing to God. Let me ask you again, is that your goal in life, to be pleasing to God? It should be, especially if you're professing faith in Jesus Christ. It should be your chief goal. It should be my chief goal. And let me say early on right here that there are many people that would say that is their ambition. Their ambition in life, their goal in life is to be pleasing to God when in fact they're really not. What do you mean? Let me give you some examples. The Pharisees. If you were to talk to the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they would tell you that they were not only religious people, but they were committed to being pleasing to God, and yet they weren't. 
If you were to talk to a monk, and I have seen them in Thailand, people that have committed themselves not to be married, not to have possessions, and in one case, not too far from Joy's work in Kanchanaburi, who I have a picture of and have shown it to you, up on a hill there's a guy who's a monk who's sitting up there on a hill. Why? He wants to be pleasing to God. He's not. You say, Pastor Dan, how could you ever say that? First of all, you can't be pleasing to God unless you've accepted his son and trusted in his son for salvation because that's his way. And you're not acceptable to God by doing the things that you want to do to please him. It's by doing the things that pleases him that he says please him. If you were to talk to a suicide bomber, they would tell you that they're doing that to please Allah. And yet they're not pleasing at all. All they're doing is taking someone's life. So there are those, and there are those who religiously are dedicated and are going around knocking on doors and down in your neighborhoods trying to win you to their religion, and they are committed, they believe, to pleasing God. Listen, there's a lot of folks that are doing a lot of things, and it could even be in this room, who think they're doing it to be pleasing to God, when in reality, they're really not pleasing God at all. They're just doing what they want to do. We have a man named Enoch, and you know most of this chapter is dealing with faith. But I want you to see something in verse 4, verse 5, excuse me, of chapter 11, to get right to the verse. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up, and we could look at that account of Genesis, which I will not do with you right now, so that he should not see death. He didn't see death. He was taken up. And he was not found because God took him up. Now watch this. For he obtained the witness. Here was the testimony of his life that before his being taken up, he was what? Pleasing to God. God took him out. He didn't see death. That's what the scriptures tell us. God took him. Why did he do that? Well, because God wanted to, sovereignly, yes. But he also tells us that Enoch's life was a life that was pleasing to God. It was a life that wasn't concerned with this world or what people thought. He was concentrating on being pleasing to God. Let me ask you again, is that your goal in life, to be pleasing to God? It should be especially if you professing faith in Jesus Christ. It should be your chief goal. It should be my chief goal. And let me say early on right here that there are many people that would say that is their ambition. Their ambition in life, their goal in life is to be pleasing to God when in fact they're really not. What do you mean? Let me give you some examples. The Pharisees. If you were to talk to the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they would tell you that they were not only religious people, but they were committed to being pleasing to God, and yet they weren't. If you were to talk to a monk, and I have seen them in Thailand, people that have committed themselves not to be married, not to have possessions, and in one case, not too far from Joy's work in Kanchanaburi, who I have a picture of and have shown it to you, up on a hill, there's a guy who's a monk who's sitting up there on a hill. Why? He wants to be pleasing to God. He's not. 
You say, Pastor Dan, how could you ever say that? First of all, you can't be pleasing to God unless you've accepted his son and trusted in his son for salvation because that's his way. And you're not acceptable to God by doing the things that you want to do to please him. It's by doing the things that pleases him, that he says please him. If you were to talk to a suicide bomber, they would tell you that they're doing that to please Allah. And yet they're not pleasing at all. All they're doing is taking someone's life. So there are those, and there are those who religiously are dedicated and are going around knocking on doors and down in your neighborhoods trying to win you to their religion, and they are committed, they believe, to pleasing God. Listen, there's a lot of folks that are doing a lot of things, and it could even be in this room, who think they're doing it to be pleasing to God, when in reality, they're really not pleasing God at all. They're just doing what they want to do. This has to do with the Sabbath day in its context. And in verse 18, Behold, my servant, he was referring to his son, Jesus Christ, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. Is well pleased. And that's quoting from Isaiah. God is well pleased with his son. Go to chapter 17 of Matthew. One more in Matthew. Chapter 17, verse 5. The transfiguration. While he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And by the way, that's a good message for you this morning. You better listen to him. You better listen to what he said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He, God, we know for sure, is satisfied with himself. He's satisfied with his work. He's satisfied with his son. And guess what? He's also satisfied with his people. And I'll give it to you quickly. He's satisfied with Israel. And he's satisfied with New Testament believers. With Israel, I won't turn you there. I'll read it to you. In Deuteronomy, just listen to chapter 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, they say this. Behold, to the Lord your God, speaking about Israelites, belongs the heaven and the highest of heavens in all the earth and all that's in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection. That's the word pleasing. Yet on your fathers he was pleased. Pleased what? To love them and to choose them. God was pleased to choose Israel. And Ephesians chapter 1 in the New Testament, turn there. I won't read it all, but Ephesians chapter 1. Now, why am I taking the time with this? You say, Pastor Dan, I thought we were talking about prayer. We are. We're getting there. But I want you to see, if you're going to make it your ambition in life to please God, you've got to know what pleases him. God is pleased with himself. He takes pleasure in his son. You need to believe him. You need to follow him. He takes pleasure in his people. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, just as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, verse 5, he predestined us, destined us to the adoption of sons according to the good intention of his will. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. He's bestowed on us in the beloved according to the riches of his grace, verse 7. He's lavished upon us wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery. Why? At verse 9, according to his kind intention with the purpose that he purposed in him, 
and the whole chapter is filled with God did this because he wanted to, and he's made us, in the whole passage, what? Accepted in the beloved. God is pleased with those who have come to Christ. You say, praise the Lord. God also takes pleasure in our worshiping him. You read it in your responsive reading this morning. Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 15 and 16, it told us to offer up sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. Why? That's pleasing to him. So how can I please God? By offering up sacrifices, what? Of thanksgiving, not complaining. Of praise, not of bickering. Of a life that walks with his son and honors his son. Why? That pleases him. But did you ever think that what God is really pleased with is the prayer of his people? Go back to our opening verse, Proverbs 15. Let's look at it. Proverbs 15. Why should I pray? Why do we pray to God? Examine your own prayer life in light of what I'm about to say. As I have been examining mine. Why do we bother to pray? Why should we pray? Here's why. Watch. Chapter 15 of Proverbs, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked, the sacrifice is what? It's an abomination. It's an abomination to the Lord. But watch this. Contrast. He says, verse 8, but the prayer of the what? The upright. His saints, his people, those who are praying, he says it's his pleasure. It's his delights. It's acceptable. God loves to have us pray to him. How could we not want to pray? How could we neglect prayer? It delights the heart of God. Why should we pray? Well, we need to pray. You see, I didn't cover these things in Scripture. God commands us to pray, doesn't he? Yes. God tells us that we are to go to him, that our needs might be met, and that's why we pray, right? Yes. Why should we pray? To have fellowship with him, right? Yes. But do we ever think, do we think every day that I want to go to God and pray because it makes God happy. Because I know today, God is going to be pleased with me because I'm praying. I say to you that it will change our whole perspective on the way we pray. It will change the whole priority on our prayer life when I realize today I'm going to pray individually or corporately because I'm pleasing God. Because he's delighted. Don't, aren't you pleased as a parent when your child comes to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, can I have? Aren't you pleased when they come? Aren't you pleased when your children come to you and say, Mommy, Daddy, can I hug you? Oh, yeah. How pleased is God? His word tells us, I'm pleased when the upright come to me. When they come before my throne, it pleases me. I, it, it's evident everywhere in Scripture. We're in Psalms. Go to Psalm 51. Oh, we're in Proverbs. Go to Psalm 51. I forgot where I was. I get wrapped up. When I see passages like this, it just 
The Lord just deals with my heart. And Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. We know Psalm 51. It's a prayer of Psalm of David. Watch this. Watch this. Verse 16 and 17. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, David says. If that were the case, I'd give it to you. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. What's he doing? He's praying, and he says, here's what it is. The sacrifices of God. How many times have you quoted this, or I quoted this, and not realized he's talking about prayer? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you won't despise that. Why? He takes pleasure. He takes pleasure when our spirits are broken. Oh, God, I've been a sinner. Come to him. Oh, God, I don't know what to do, but I come to you with a broken and a contrite heart. I love that. Come. I'm listening. God's listening. That's what it is. He takes pleasure in that. Look at Psalm 147. Psalm 147. You see, most of the time we go to prayer, it's because we want something. And we need something. And that's good that we need something and we want something. But we should just be going and praying because it delights our, our Father. Don't you want to do something to delight someone else that you love? Of course you do. Hopefully, men, you find out what your wife likes and you, you want to do that because you know it pleases them. Or wives, you want to do something because you know it pleases your husband. You don't want to find out, I know they'll be pleased by this, so I'm going to do just the opposite. Your marriage ain't going to last. Shouldn't we want to do something because we know it pleases God and that's the only reason we want to do it? Because it's going to please Him? I believe that should be our prayer life. Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. He does not delight in the strength of a horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors. It's the same thing as just being expressed different words. His pleasure is in those that fear Him, those that wait for His loving kindness. How is that? through prayer and waiting upon God. That's what he delights in. We're studying the book of Revelation on Sunday evenings. And those of you that have been with me for it, remember chapter 5? We just finished it in Revelation. What was brought up before the Lord in the throne room when the Lamb accepted the scroll? The prayers of the saints. You know what we're going to see in chapter 8? You know what's going to be brought before God when there's silence in heaven? The prayers of the saints. Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Prayers of the saints. Why? God delights. Why do you think he says in Hebrews to, that now we have a high priest in heaven who has not been... He, he's, he's been touched with our infirmities, and we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. What is that? That's prayer. I can come before the throne of God because he wants it and because his son's made it possible. So why should I be praying? Why should you be praying? Not just because we want something, not just because we need something. Think about that. Often our prayer life is centered around, ah, God, you know I have this need with my kids. God, you know I have this need with my job. God, you know I have this need. And that's good to be going to God. But how often do we say, God, you know, I'm just coming right now 
My heart's right before you because I know you delight in prayer. I'm coming because I want to be in your presence in prayer. I just want to pray. I want to pray for others. I want to pray, and I know it's delighting your heart as I come in a contrite spirit wanting to just show my dependence upon the all-loving God who is absolutely satisfied with himself, his son, and believers. It ought to drive us to prayer because it pleases God. And I put the last question on your outline, and I haven't given adequate justice like I could in depth here. But the point is this. Prayer should be a priority in our lives. We should see prayer in the house of God in that God met with his people in the Old Testament in a building. He meets with believers individually wherever we are. But when we corporately gather, he's also there and wants us to be praying. And what also ought to drive us to prayer is the fact that it pleases him. He's delighted with prayer. You say, Pastor Dan, why in the world should I pray if God knows? And I'm not going to do in-depth study on this, but I'm going to just give you some quick points. If God knows everything beforehand and he's absolutely sovereign, why pray anyway? Well, let me tell you, first of all, God commands you to pray, right? But let me throw a couple of things by you before we leave today. Would you really want to pray to someone, or would you really want to pray to a God who was not sovereign? What good would that be? I'm going to go to a God who, he doesn't know what I need, and he can't do it anyway, but I'm going to test him. Really? I would rather want to go to a God who knows everything, who holds everything in his hand, and is saying to me, trust. I'm the one who can do it. I'm the one who's got everything in control. And I already know what you need before you open your mouth, but come. I'd rather go to a God like that. I need to realize that prayer doesn't change God anyway. A.W. Pink put it this way, and I quote, God is not a chameleon that is always changing. Aren't you grateful for that? That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? What does that do for my prayer life? It strengthens it. I'm going to a God who's not driven by emotions like I am, who am up and down and over and around in every way. Which He's consistent. And I can go to him in prayer, not to change him, but to change me. That ought to drive me to prayer. Our greatest encouragement in prayer, in my opinion, is that God doesn't change. He's consistent, so I can read in his word, and that's why he says, whatever you ask in my will, that will I do. Do you see the connection again to the word of God in prayer? Get into the book and know what I've said. And then when you come with me in prayer, relying on me, you know you've got the petition. You know you got that. And this morning, it pleases him. Let me give you two more statements. Why have prayer if God is sovereign? The same God who set his plan in motion from the foundation of the world has included prayer as the means by which he accomplishes his will. He's chosen before the foundation of the world 
but the means by which he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish by his sovereign choice is the means of prayer. And that should drive us to prayer. God's providential care and rule, second point, helps us to know how to direct our prayers. It doesn't cause us to avoid. So that those who think because God knows everything, I don't need to pray, you don't know God the way you should. Because it is because he's providential. It is because he's sovereign. It is because I know his will. And it is because he's invited me. And he's chosen that means of accomplishing his will that I pray. It's just like the gospel. Will God save those who he's going to save? Yes, he will. What is the means of bringing people to the gospel, of bringing people to him? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the foolishness of preaching. God says through the foolishness of preaching, you just preach that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. You preach that men and women are sinners and are in need of the salvation that God provides, and I'll do the rest. You just pray to me in accordance with my will and watch the way I work. And I want you to know, and I'll conclude with this, that I delight, I take pleasure in my children coming to me and praying. So why pray? Why should our prayer life be increased? Why should we want to be known as a church that's a church of prayer? Because prayer, my folks, fellow believer, delights God. We delight in him. The next time you go to prayer, and I'm about to do that right now, let us remember that we want to go because we're pleasing our Heavenly Father. It makes Him happy, and that ought to make us want to go. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for the Word of God. Thank you that we've been able to take a little time for a few weeks to look at some different aspects of prayer that normally are not preached on, just to get a glimpse of you, to get a glimpse of what pleases you. Father, we see the example of your son who, while the sovereign God of the universe and taking on flesh, he frequently went to the mountain to pray, to pray to his heavenly Father. And now we know, not just because it was right, but because it pleases you. Father, we come to you in prayer often as a needy people. Father, individually, corporately, in our nation, <clears throat> we have tremendous needs. And we are thankful that you are sovereignly in control, and we can come to you. Father, help us to come as a loving child who realizes that this makes you happy. It pleases you. It is acceptable to you for a child of God to come with a humble and a broken spirit to the God of the universe and make our request known. You tell us often that we don't have because we don't even ask. Father, search this room. <clears throat> Are we praying the way we should individually? Do we pray the way we should corporately? Are our requests mostly about us? Or do we realize that, again, the greater we know you, the more effective our prayer life will be as we understand what pleases you. Father, help us to have a prayer life that's worthy. And Father, help us to delight ourselves in you delighting in us. Thank you for this time.
We pray these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name.